I'd like to begin with a few words of gratitude, if you'll allow me a few moments to do that before I preach. Is that okay? First, thanks and praise goes to God for the sustaining and healing power of His grace in my life over the last three months. He's done more than I thought was possible in such a, such a short time. His heart is so kind and His healing hands so tender and effective. His Word and His Spirit have been my strength and His Son my refuge and hiding place. So thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for meaning so much good to come out of so much evil in my life. Secondly, thank you, church. Thank you, Preston Highlands Baptist Church, for allowing me to take the time off to do the kind of work I needed to do and will continue to do for my own personal health and wholeness as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a follower of Jesus. Your prayers, church, and text messages and hugs and meals and encouragement have been life-giving. Pastoral ministry often feels like living alone on an island. Many of you have joined me on that island. Thank you. Thank you for your love and your care. Thank you especially to Jared Pulse and Mason Smith. Brothers, you've carried a heavy burden these months. Thank you. Did a lot of extra work so that I could have this time away. You did extra work with excellence, diligence, humility, and joy. Thank you for taking on so many different things, making so many sacrifices for our church's good, revealing the heart of Christ to us. I love you, brothers, and I honor you today. Thank you to my family, some of whom are here today. Mom, Jen, Rusty. Love you all. Mom wouldn't be who I am without you. Thank you for walking with me, crying with me, engaging in difficult conversations with me, and for loving me no matter what. Praise God for the good gift of family. Amen. Amen. Finally, thank you, Susie, for everything. It's not been easy being married to me. Amen? She's really the only one who gave me that. So, I'm not sure what that means. I will never, Susie, never deserve the honor of being your husband. That God would allow me to journey with you through life is stunning. Thank you for your patience and playfulness, your wisdom and wit, your character and conviction and compassion. I love being in your presence. You're clothed with strength and dignity, and I cherish you and I honor you today. Let's pray and then we'll dive into our message for the morning. Father in heaven, thank you for the undeserved blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, the gift of your Holy Spirit, the comforter and helper who lives within us.
Thank you for the undeserved blessings of this time away that Preston Highlands has granted me, allowed me to have. Thank you for Jared and Mason carrying so many different things over these months. Thank you for my family. Thank you for Susie. Thank you for our children. Thank you that you have filled my life with so many good things. Every good things, every good thing comes from above. So I give you thanks. I give you praise. Now we turn to your word, um, one of your best gifts, of course, the word, the written word, and then the living word, your son. We are so grateful for these gifts, and we look now to your word, hoping and expecting and needing encouragement and challenge, needing comfort, needing help, needing hope. We need so much. We need so much. We need so much, Father. And so as we enter into this time of studying your word, please meet us where we are. Bring to us all the graces that we need this morning through your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is not a happy-go-lucky fairy tale. This life, your life and mine, is full of darkness, evil, sin, and death. You're like, thanks, John. Happy Easter. <laughs> Isn't Easter supposed to be, out, be about pastels and flowers and fun and smiles? Well, we don't get to the joy of Easter without the agony of the cross. So let's start with a dose of realism. Life is not a happy-go-lucky fairy tale. Just this week I learned that a friend's baby son has a hole in his heart and may not weigh enough for surgery for several years. I also learned this week that a pastor friend's daughter fell from a picnic table, damaged her skull, has a brain bleed, and has been in the hospital for 16 days. A few weeks ago I took my mom to the hospital for her melanoma infusion treatment, and we walked through this huge room full of people of all ages, all skin colors, all walks of life, hooked up to machines for their chemo treatments. Saw a husband my age helping his wife eat while she received her chemo. And I could multiply these examples and you could add many of your own. Hardly a week goes by that I or you don't hear about someone's pain. This isn't just being realistic. This is acknowledging that this world and our lives are filled with suffering. So I wonder, friends, do you feel, not think and know, but feel the agonies of the people around you? Have you even noticed the groaning of this sin-sick world that we live in? The groaning of your own heart that Paul talks about in Romans 8. The groanings of your weary heart trying to make sense of this sin-soaked world. One writer says, quote, The sterilized metaphysics of Western spirituality, the liturgies of eat, pray, love, 
are sieves or filters when it comes to the bloodiness of reality. In other words, he's saying the vague and shallow spirituality of our culture isn't strong enough to hold the reality of the pain of life as we actually experience it. Many of us close our eyes to the agonies of life. We try to. But how do we see, excuse me, unsee the things we've seen? Unfeel the things we've felt, unlive the things we've lived. So friends, what do you do with the pain and darkness of your life? What have you done with it? What are you doing with it? And where's God in it? Where's God in that dark place, that corner of your life that perhaps hasn't even been spoken of in years? Where's hope in that place? Is there even hope to be had? Or is there only despair? Is there only medicating the pain and putting our best foot forward and pretending everything's great? I love you, my boy. The Bible tells us, of course, that there is hope in the midst of suffering because God is in the midst of suffering. See the cross. Our God, the God of the Bible, is not afraid to get His hands dirty and to just observe a world soaked with sin and darkness and pain and suffering, but actually comes into it and joins us there. Not just as a spectator, but as a participant. Again, see the cross. I love the Bible. Do you love the Bible? I love the Bible for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is because it's a really honest book. It's earthy and gritty and full of tragedy and realistic human frailty and human failings. But it's also a book that crescendos with hope. The Bible never leaves us in despair. It doesn't just tell us things are bad and leave us there. It gives us courage to name that darkness and then eyes to see the light of God while we walk through it. So one of the things we're going to see in the Bible today in Genesis chapter 50 is that evil, sin, and death do not extinguish hope, but create the context for it. Genesis chapter 50. Please find a Bible on your phone. There are black pew Bibles in front of you. You can grab one of those. Genesis 50 will be our text. One of the things we've seen throughout our study of Genesis, this is the last week of our study of Genesis. I don't know how long it's been. A year and a half? I, I really kind of lost track. Uh, hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have. And thank you, brothers, who've been, who've been preaching. My goodness, Jared, Mason, Michael, Damien, probably leaving somebody out. Am I leaving anybody out? Hudlow, did you preach? Where's Hudlow? Hudlow's not here. Cool. Nursery. 
Thank you, brothers, for preaching so faithfully these last months so well. I've enjoyed this study. We're coming to its conclusion, Genesis 50. Again, this text is going to make it very clear that evil, sin, and death don't extinguish hope, but create the context for it. To put it another way, without darkness, we wouldn't know what light is. The darkness of the evil committed against Joseph created the stage for God to shine the spotlight of His love on His people to the world. The evil in Joseph's life did not stop the promises of God. This is our main point for this morning from Genesis 50. Evil, sin, and death do not stop the promises of God. Evil, sin, and death do not stop the promises of God. That's our main point. Here are the three sections we'll look at together. We'll see Jacob die in verses 1 through 14. We'll see Jacob's brothers lie again in verses 15 through 21. And then we'll see Joseph die in 22 through 26. So Jacob dies 1 through 14. Brothers lie 15 through 21. Joseph dies 22 through 26. Spoiler alert, the first section and the third section are going to be super short, and we're going to be in that middle section for a very long time. Okay? Because it's one of the most important passages, I think, probably in the Bible. Number one, Jacob dies. Jacob dies, verses 1 through 14. Genesis 50, verse 1. <clears throat> then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Jacob had just died. See verse 33 of chapter 49. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the, on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and his brothers 
and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. One writer notes, quote, at the end of Hollywood movies, the heroes ride off into the sunset. At the end of biblical stories, the heroes die. <laughs> Jacob dies. But this text, you might have noticed, is actually more about his burial than his death and the journey made to bury him in Canaan. Why would Moses spend 14 verses, so much time recounting the specifics of Jacob's burial? Almost half of this final chapter, or a little more than half, of this final chapter spent on this burial story. What's Moses doing? Well, two things. First, he wants to show us uh, Jacob's faith in the promises of God. And second, he wants to encourage the Israelites who are about to enter the promised land quickly, one at a time. Number one, Jacob's burial in Canaan was his final act of faith. Jacob's burial in Canaan was his final act of faith. Like his forefathers, Jacob wanted to be buried in Canaan in order to affirm his belief in the promises of God to give his descendants that land. You might remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their wives. Joseph later, we're going to find out, wants to be buried. They all were buried, and Joseph wants to be buried in Canaan. Why? Because Canaan was the place that God promised to give them. They did not own it yet, but God had promised to give it to them. So by leaving their bones in Canaan, the patriarchs, like Jacob, were affirming their belief in the promises of God beyond death. Do you have belief in the promises of God beyond death? Like them? This is resurrection faith, in a sense. We typically want to be buried near our home. I don't mean like in the backyard or something. But like, I mean, we had some plumbing work done and, you know, Susie talked about pushing me off in the hole. <laughs> it's quite deep. Anyways, sorry, it's been three months. This might not go well. We typically want to be buried near our home. The patriarchs wanted to be buried in a land that would be their home eventually. You'd be like, hey, you, you live in Carrollton or Addison or wherever you live. You're like, yeah, you know, I think I want to be buried in Montana. That'd be great. Your whole life is here, but God promised you to give, to give you Montana, which would be a cool gift. And so you had your family take your bones to Montana, even though you lived here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob believed that death could not stop the promises of God. They believed that promise so much that they wanted their bones in the land that their children and their children's children would one day receive. Jacob's burial in Canaan was his final act of faith. But secondly, the other thing going on here in this text, Moses is using Jacob's burial in Canaan as a preview of the Exodus. There's several clues in the text that bring this out. I'm not going to go through all of this. The two main ones are, that Jacob's corpse followed the same route as his descendants would 400 years later. There's a little geographical detail in verses 10 and 11. Uh, they come to the threshing floor of Atad. It's beyond the Jordan. That's, that means they, they didn't go the normal route uh, from Egypt to Canaan, which would have been along the Mediterranean coast and is shorter. Instead, they went through the wilderness around the Dead Sea and to the east of the Jordan. Who else went that way when they went from Egypt to Canaan? Israel, 400 years later. So Moses is alluding to that. But also notice in verse 9 this detail of the chariots and horsemen. 
Chariots and horsemen go with Jacob's bones to Canaan. Chariots and horsemen are only mentioned here and in the account of the Exodus, connecting those events. So all this means that Moses wants us to see that Jacob's personal exodus out of Egypt is the initial fulfillment of God's promise to bring the nation of Israel to the promised land. The ultimate fulfillment would come later when the whole nation leaves Egypt, journeys to Canaan, but the exodus of Jacob's corpse serves as a sign and guarantee of what would happen later. This journey is the first fruits of a promise that will ultimately be fulfilled later. Much like Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits or sign and guarantee of the resurrection of all those who are united to him through faith. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 20. In other words, because Jesus rose from the dead, it's guaranteed that if you are believing in Jesus, you also will be resurrected from the dead. It's a guarantee. His resurrection is a sign and a seal and a guarantee of yours. Jacob's bones going to Canaan the way that Israel would later go to Canaan from Egypt is a sign and guarantee that that, will be, that promise will be fulfilled. They will get that land. God will come through on His word. The pain and agony of Jacob's death and Jesus' death don't nullify the promises of God, but rather sets the stage for the fulfillment of His promises to bless His people. This is going to be a key theme for us now as we move into the second section. The pain and agony of Jacob's life and Jesus's and yours sets the stage for where the promises of God will be fulfilled. So we've seen Jacob's death. Number two, the brothers lie. The brothers lie. Verse 15 through 21. <clears throat> Jacob is dead and buried. Now, verse 15, the brothers lie. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These verses are so rich and important that we're going to take them rather slowly. Verse 15, the fear of Joseph's brothers led them to create a story of what they thought would happen now that their dad was dead. Verse 15, Joseph will hate us and pay us back. The problem, of course, is they... They had no way to know if this was true. It's a story they made up in their heads. And this is what we do all the time. Any amens out there on that one? <laughs> this is what I do all the time. We move, I move, from the sensation of fear to the thought or belief 
we build from that to a story that we start to tell ourselves. And of course, our stories always end with the worst possible scenario. In our brains, we believe things have or will happen that haven't or won't happen. When we let fear and anxiety have free reign in our minds. So one of the keys then when we're battling anxiety is to stop the story. Stop the story. It's okay to feel anxious. Feelings aren't wrong. They're neutral. What we start to build off of them is what's important. Fear turned Joseph's brothers and you and me into master storytellers. Because they didn't process these fears well, it led them to try to control the situation, as we see next, through deception. 16 and 17. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. These words are not true. Jacob never gave them those commands. Jacob did not tell them to tell Joseph these things. They were lying. Their fear led them to lie. But notice the desire underneath their lies. It's mentioned twice in verse 17 for emphasis. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers. Please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, the God of your father. The thing they longed for in that moment was forgiveness. They desired to be reconciled with their brother. But instead of taking the risk of naming that desire before him, their fear led them to create a story and then build a lie to get what they wanted. This is a good example for us, brothers and sisters, a good opportunity for us to consider briefly something that we don't often notice in our own lives and as we walk with one another underneath our sin are usually good and godly desires. Before you name me a heretic, please hear me out. Underneath your sin is usually a good and godly desire. For example, anyone struggle with people-pleasing? Why do you want so badly for people to like you? To people, for people to think well of you? For people to want to be around you and enjoy you? Perhaps it's because God made you for relationships and connection and depth with other people. Perhaps the desire is a good one. And then what you do, what we do to fulfill it, is wrong and destructive. So yes, we need to be quick to call sin, sin, and name it what it is. People-pleasing is Sin. We should live to please God. But desiring connection and depth and authenticity and vulnerability with another human being is not bad. It's actually how God made you. So what if we helped each other name sin and helped each other see how our sins are often the byproduct of our seeking to meet good desires in bad ways. 
That would be really cool to see that become part of our discipleship as brothers and sisters. Being the sin police isn't actually that hard. It's part of the deal. Like, hey, John, stop doing that. That's bad. Okay, let's take that one step further and try to figure out why I and you keep doing those things. And see what the Lord can do in that. Instead of coming to Joseph and humbly confessing their sins and their need and their desire for forgiveness, asking for it, his brothers lie and try to manipulate him into forgiving them. This is bad. But their desire for forgiveness is good. Why is their, why is their desire for forgiveness good? Because it tells us that they know they're guilty. They know they're guilty. Their guilt hung over their lives like a death sentence. So as soon as dad dies, they literally think they're going to die at Joseph's hands because of their guilt. Their sin had earned them death. So they knew deep down that forgiveness from Joseph, uh, Joseph was the only way to life. So they wanted it. They just did something really stupid and sinful to try to gain it. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you're here for the first time, I'm so glad you're here. I want to remind you also that forgiveness is your only way to life as well. See, God made you. He created you in your mother's womb. You're not an accident. You're not accidentally on planet Earth. God made you special and unique and beautiful and in His holy image. The problem is, of course, is we've all preferred other things over God. We've chosen to do things our way rather than His way. We've doubted His goodness. We've assumed that He's against us, ultimately not for us in Christ. So we've sinned. We've broken His law. We've brought separation between us and Him. And if that were where the story ended, then we would all die and go to hell. That's what the Bible says. But in mercy, God sent Christ to take our punishment to take the justice of God on His shoulders that we deserve so that if we will trust in Him and stop trusting in ourselves and our scheme of salvation and our righteousness and our moral superiority and our awesome life and beautiful life and whatever we're trusting in, but put all of our hope on Christ, we will be forgiven for free. For free. You don't have to do anything but look to Christ and believe. And then course the resurrection guarantees as I've already said that if you've done that then you also will be raised to everlasting life instead of everlasting death so friends if you're here and you're not yet following Jesus we're so happy you're here we want you to come and be with us every single Sunday we also want you to know and love the God who made you we want you to turn from your sins and put your hope in Christ Christ is not against you. He came for sinners. He literally said, I didn't come for healthy people. I came for sick people. So all you have to do is admit your sickness and he's yours. The only thing you have to bring is your need. So if you want to talk to me or maybe the person you came with this morning more about that, please do so. Maybe this Easter will be the Easter that the Lord resurrects your life, your family's life for generations. 
these brothers knew that forgiveness was the only way to life. Though they sought to secure it in sinful ways, their desire was good. They knew their guilt. They knew they needed to be forgiven. I wonder if you do as well. Now, before we move on from verse 17, though, did you notice how Joseph reacted to these brothers of his at the end of the verse? Verse 17, very, very end. I love this little detail. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph wept. This is the guy who's second in command of all of Egypt, one of the superpowers of the day. He wept when they spoke to him. What's he crying for? Why is Joseph crying? Surely Joseph battled resentment. He'd been in jail. He'd been through so much hell because of these men. Surely he battled resentment because he was human. But in this moment, what comes out of Joseph is grief. Grief. Joseph wept before them. What comes out is grief, not resentment. So I wonder as we think about our own lives, our own guilt, and the guilt incurred against us by others who've harmed us, how do we deal with this guilt? How do we break its power over us? I would suggest that grief is a good place to start. Why? Because grief means you're finally being honest. Grief means that you're calling your sin, sin. That you're calling the sin against you, sin. When we start to grieve over our sins, like, like 2 Corinthians is it 6, I think, with godly sorrow, repentance starts to happen. Worldly sorrow will just lead to more death. Grief, I'm suggesting, is one of the ways toward healing. The road of repentance and reconciliation is paved with tears. Minimizing guilt and not feeling its weight will keep us away from the cross. As long as we think we're okay, we're not going to run to a crucified Messiah, Savior, Jesus, who came to heal us and restore us and save us. Grief, I would argue, I'm trying to argue, is one of the indications that you and I are no longer minimizing our own sin or those who've sinned against us. Joseph's brothers still don't fully trust Joseph's goodness. So they resort to unhealthy and sinful ways of dealing with their fears. Joseph has gone out of his way to give them acceptance and welcome and been lavish in his generosity toward them, but they still doubt his goodness. Can you imagine how Joseph feels? Like he's already been so good to them, and they come in after Jacob's dead, and they're lying, they're scheming, and Joseph is just understandably feeling sorrow. Like, guys, come on. Come on, guys. Have you been listening to what I've been saying to you? They're lying and scheming and trying to control their destiny instead of just trusting Joseph's goodness. So what if Joseph's weeping reflects the heart of Christ when we doubt Jesus' goodness and we try to figure things out on our own? We resort to unhealthy and destructive things instead of trusting in the goodness of our greater Joseph. It's like the parent who wants nothing but good for their child. 
They're, they're literally offering good to their child, and the child is just like, nope. Or yelling and screaming and pouting and whining. <laughs> that does something. I mean, in me, it doesn't always create the most healthy reaction, but it grieves the heart of a parent when the child rejects the parent's goodness. I think that's what's happening here with Joseph. Joseph wept as he stood before his brothers and watched them reject or at least not trust his goodness yet again. Now, then verse 18 happens, and this is just them digging the hole deeper, I guess. Verse 18, his brothers came, fell down before him, and said, Behold, we are your servants. So they're not interpreting this weeping thing rightly. They're saying, or excuse me, instead of seeing his heart of compassion, uh, their fear only sees more threat. They're saying, we'll do anything for you, Joseph, as long as you don't kill us. They want to live. That's a good desire. Living is good. But they still don't understand the heart of their brother. So they resort to promises driven by self-preservation. They'll do anything for him as long as they get to live. Their service is motivated by fear, not love. And so their service isn't ultimately about Joseph, but about themselves. Brothers and sisters, maybe you see where I'm going with this, but the call of Christ on our lives is to serve out of love, not out of fear. You might remember what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Service motivated by fear is service motivated by wanting to avoid punishment. Service motivated by love is service motivated by Jesus. Again, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So brothers and sisters, a question by way of just some application this morning. Do you love people so that they'll like you? Or do you love people because Jesus loves you? Do you, let's change the word, do you serve people so that they'll like you? Or do you serve people because Jesus loves you? It's a big difference. And again, as I said earlier, it's not wrong that people would like you. But what's your motivating, what's animating your motives in your service, in your mothering, your fathering, your work tomorrow morning, your school. Your role as husband or wife. What's motivating your service? Fear or love? We love because He first loved us. Now how does Joseph respond to his brother's fearful lying and scheming Verse 19 through 21 say that he responds with truth and grace, with kindness and generosity. Let's look at it again. 19 through 21. Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
Joseph knows that fear is driving their request. This is why he says, do not fear twice. Verse 19 and 21, the beginning of his little speech and the end of it. Do not fear. Do not fear. He knows what they've done. He knows what they deserve. He knows they're afraid. And instead of meeting their fear with threats and punishment, he meets it with the calming words of kindness. 21, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is free to be kind to them because he knows his place. He knows he's not God. Am I in the place of God? He's saying, am I the one who decides your fate? Am I the judge of your life? Am I the one who has the right to pay you back for all the evil you've done to me? He's saying to them what Paul says to us in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's scary, by the way. Can I say that again? Just hear this. This is God speaking. Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, no one gets away with anything in this universe, ever, ever. You will either get paid back by God in hell for not repenting of your sins and turning to Christ, or your payment landed on the back of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. But no one gets away with anything. No one gets away with anything. Then Paul goes on to say in Romans 12, listen to this, this is crazy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now I know that giving people kindness, especially people who've harmed you, seems backwards and foolish and scary. And of course there are and must be consequences for sin and sinners. People who show no evidence of repentance may need the kindness of rebuke. But it's often the case that the thing that will get an enemy's attention the most is kindness, not justice. And of course, isn't this what drew us to Jesus? Romans 4, it's God's, or Romans 2, I don't know. God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. God's kindness is what drew you to Jesus to walk with Him and know Him and be His. His kindness then and should therefore inspire kindness in us as we face those who've harmed us. So this brings us now to verse 20, one of the most theologically important and practically relevant statements in the whole Bible. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's the same Hebrew word. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's so much that could be said about this passage. I'm only going to focus on one basic point and then draw one basic application. The point is that Harmful actions against us do not mean that God is against us. Let me say that again. Harmful actions against us do not mean that God is against us. And the application we'll get to is that the pain in our lives is perhaps one of God's best gifts to us. First, harmful actions against us do not mean that God is against us. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph is saying two things. You meant to do harm, and God meant to do good.
You meant to do harm. God meant to do good. Both are true. Real evil was committed against Joseph. Real evil has been committed against you. This is the lived experience of everyone in this room. It's also true, though, that God intends to do real good to us through that real evil. I want to make a qualification here before we go on. This should be a topic of conversation, of conversation over lunch today. So just make it awkward at lunch today and say, Hey, what would y'all think about what John said about God doing good stuff through bad stuff? And just see where that goes. Just roll that grenade out there and see where it goes. But let me make at least one qualification before we go on. Here it is. We may never know or barely understand the good things that God is up to in the evil of our lives. This verse doesn't say, you will always know and be able to articulate the good things God is up to in your pain. It's not what it says. It doesn't say that. This text and texts like Romans 8.28 Romans 8, that Mason read simply say that God is working good in all the things His people endure. Piper says it best when he says God is usually up to a thousand things in any given circumstance and we might know two of them. Not knowing the good that God is doing doesn't mean that He's not doing good. In Jesus, God is forever for the good of His people. So when I say that harmful actions against us do not mean that God is against us, I'm trying to get your eyes on the cross, a cross, frankly, Romans 8, 20, excuse me, 31, 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That phrase, all things, is connected to the all things of verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So what are the all things that God wants to graciously give us? All the things that are good for us. Why? Because God's for us, not against us. You're like, John, my life is a living hell. I feel you. But the Bible says that God is for you, not against you. So in the authority of the Bible, I also tell you emphatically that God is for you. Friends, He's not against you. What if your picture of Christ is actually more driven by your own thoughts than the Bible? What if Christ actually grieves with you in your pain? And isn't kind of like mad that you're so upset about stuff? What if Christ is way more compassionate than you've ever imagined? So compassionate that He actually entered into hell for you. So when I say again that harmful actions against us do not mean that God is against us, what I mean is that Jesus loves you because He sent Jesus, excuse me, God loves you because He sent Jesus to the cross. That's what I mean. In Jesus, God is forever for the good of His people. Forever. Forever for your good. That's the basic point. Now, the primary application I'd like to draw from this is that pain is one of the best gifts God gives to His people. Pain is one of the best gifts that God gives to His people. Before we discuss what types of good things God is up to in our pain, let me challenge you to, first of all, stop minimizing your pain right now.
Just stop it. Stop minimizing your pain. As long as you're not honest about where you're at and where you've come from, you're likely to miss what God's up to. If Psalm 139 is true, that God wrote all your days down in His book before one of them came to be, then your story is sacred. Every detail. Every detail. In other words, God is there. He's there. He lives in your story. He wrote the thing. (laughs) He wrote your story. All of it. So as long as you're not honest about where you're at, where you've come from, you're going to miss what God's up to. Joseph is kind and generous toward his brothers, but he's also honest. He tells them plainly, you meant evil against me. You meant evil against me. His kindness is all the more kind because he's willing to name what they did and call it what it was, evil, against him. We minimize our pain in all kinds of ways. We compare it to others. We say things like, well, my stuff isn't, my stuff isn't as hard as hers or his or theirs. Like that makes it any less painful. Just stop saying stupid stuff like that, please. Sorry, was that mean? I'm sorry. Susie will tell me later. Susie will tell me later. Why are we comparing? Like, oh, it's not as bad as that. No, your pain is, guess what? Your pain. That's what it is. It's your pain, what God has allotted to you. We also need to stop, stop hiding behind Bible verses and theological truths and stop saying things like, yeah, you know, this is so hard, but God is really teaching me so much great stuff right now. And this kind of false spirit of optimism. Now, I'm all about optimism, but sometimes we use it to mask what we're actually going through. Susie pointed out to me the other day how we're not comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. So we minimize, suppress, and explain away our sadnesses, our loneliness, our hurts, our longings, our fears, our anger. And we hyper-spiritualize these things instead of staring them in the face and being honest. Then, on top of all this, we, we live a pace of life that doesn't allow us to ever just stop and think and feel any of this stuff that I'm alluding to. And what if it's true that we keep ourselves so ridiculously busy because we're terrified of what we'll see if we actually do stop long enough to take a look under the hood and see why I'm so incredibly angry, why I'm so incredibly lonely, why the sadness, why the pain, why the whatever. What if you stopped long enough and just thought about those things and engaged a wise guide to help you think about what's going on? So why does God often bring pain into our lives? Well, what I'm arguing is it's one of his best gifts. So we need to stop minimizing it so that we can receive the gift. Dane Ortland in his book, Deeper, big shocker here that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend a Dane Ortland book. His book, Deeper, is his book on sanctification. You should all buy it today and read it tomorrow. He says this, pain will foster growth like nothing else if we will let it. In other words, no change happens in the human heart without some level of discomfort. Just friends, think about your own lives. Did you grow the most in Christ when everything was going pretty smoothly? Or when things were 
not going so smoothly. So how does pain grow us? Well, Ortland talks about how pain loosens the grip of self, the grip of the world, the grip of idols, and the grip of sin in our lives. I wish I had time to go into each one of these things. I don't. The very least, again, buy his book deeper. Read chapter 7 on pain. Very slowly discuss with someone as you read. But only a sovereign and good God could orchestrate reality in such a way that good things come out of bad things. Because of our sin, we deserve to only have bad things, to only have pain as our reward. But God in mercy intends to actually do good things through our bad things. Pain is therefore a gift of grace, a gift that like Christ must be received by faith that God is both sovereign and as Mason pointed out last week. Was that last week? You preached last week? Okay. God is both sovereign and, what did you say? Sovereign and good. He's both sovereign and good. So God, therefore, allows pain in our lives to heal us, not hurt us. God isn't just trying to teach us a lesson, whip us into shape, or punish us. When pain comes, it comes from the hands of a tender father for our healing. And this is what we want anyways. In our deepest heart, don't you want to be free from sin and self and the world and your idols? Don't, or do you just love all of that stuff has created for you? In our deepest heart, we want freedom from those things. And often the Lord has to bring pain to loosen our grip. Puritan John Flavel said it this way, You lie too near God's heart for Him to hurt you. I love that. God will never hurt you. He only intends to heal you. So when pain comes, we either believe our theology that God is good and sovereign, sovereign and good, or we let our hearts harden. Again, as Ortland says, either we let the divine physician continue the operation, or we insist on being willed out of the operating room. But pain doesn't let us go on as before either way. One of the ways that God brings good through pain is through grief. I'm going to circle back around to grief because it's so important. Let's call this good grief. Thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> Our tears are God's tools. Ecclesiastes 7.3. Sorrow is better than laughter. What? That's in the Bible. <laughs> Sorrow is better than laughter. And then Proverbs 14.13. Even in laughter the heart may ache. So the Bible is saying that a smiling exterior can hide an aching interior, or a sad exterior can hide deep and solid joy. Again, Ortland, our tears do not hinder growth. Our tears accelerate and deepen growth. Let yourself, friends, hear this. Please receive this. Let yourself cry as you grow. Don't stuff your emotions down. Growing in Christ isn't all smiles and laughter. Let your tears and the wounds they reflect tape you... Take you deeper with Christ than you could otherwise go. He says, as I've heard my dad say, deep wounds deepen us. Sorrow is better than laughter. God never wastes pain. What if despair is the soil in which God intends to grow hope? As Paul says, suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. That's crazy. Of all the things he could have said, it's hope that doesn't disappoint us. Therefore, friends, don't curse the light while you're walking through the, through the dark. That would not be a good decision. Don't curse the light as you're walking through the dark. 
Rather, seek to find and see and at least trust that God is up to astounding things in the dark. For Joseph and his family, it was salvation from famine. That's the end of verse 20. An entire family that would eventually become the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah would eventually come was rescued from death, brought to life because of, through Joseph's pain. In light of this great reversal, Joseph's brothers should not be afraid. So what he closes with, do not fear. Do not, and I will provide for you and your little ones. Joseph is saying a God big enough and wise enough to bring life for millions through the pain of one righteous man is a God who can calm our fears and provide for us and our little ones. Friends, let me encourage you to let pain be the gift that God intends it to be in your life. To not minimize it, but to receive it and see what the Lord may have for you in it. Lastly, number three, shortest point ever, Joseph dies, 22 through 26. Let's land the plane. Number three, Joseph dies, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So unlike Jacob, Joseph is buried in Egypt, but wants his bones to be taken to Canaan whenever Israel leaves Egypt. His hope is even greater than Jacob's. If Israel stayed in Egypt forever, Joseph and his bones would stay in Egypt forever. If they left, he would leave. So Joseph is staking his entire future resting place entirely on the fulfillment of God's promises. He was convinced in verse 24 that God would visit his people, bring them out of Egypt, and take them to the land he swore to give them. He even made these brothers swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you'll do this. You'll take my bones to Canaan. I wonder, friends, are you convinced that God will visit his people again? That God will visit his people and bring us to the land he swore to give us when Jesus returns? Jesus' resurrection guarantees this. Jesus' death and resurrection is the climactic example of God's ability to turn evil on its head and use it for good. This is what Peter said in his sermon at Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this wasn't an accident. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In other words... Peter is saying God used the sins of evil men to send Jesus to the cross to die for the sins of his people and then go through death and come out the other side in a glorious resurrection. In other words, Peter is saying the resurrection doesn't happen unless evil happened. The evil of the cross. So in the gospel we find the supreme example of God's ability to bring good out of bad. To bring healing out of pain. To bring life out of death. Light out of darkness. If God can use the murder of the innocent Son of God for the eternal good of millions and millions of people, then surely He can bring some bit of goodness out of the sin, evil, and darkness that pervades our lives. To put it another way, Jesus' resurrection means that there's a 
power pulsing in the world that makes the impossible possible. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then God can bring resurrection out of any of the deaths of our lives. So what if our pain is where God's power and presence are most clearly felt and found? By the way, and this is where we'll end, this doesn't mean, this, this fact that God can do anything He wants, wherever He wants, however He wants, doesn't mean that He will do what you want Him to do. <laughs> it doesn't mean that He's going to make your pain go away. It just doesn't mean that. What the resurrection does mean, though, the cross and the resurrection, is that God Almighty has decided to come and live with you while you walk through it, to become what you want while you wait for Him. So the final question I'd have for you this Easter Sunday is, in your heart of hearts, is Jesus the best thing that you have? Or do you just want things from Him? Relief from pain is good. Pray for it. Seek it. Ask for it. Plead for it. But is Jesus enough for you? Is He the best thing you have and really the only thing you need? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, probably said too much. (laughs) Father, please take your word and help us to sift through it and take from here what we need to take from here. Pray for any who are hurting, especially those who are suffering in silence, especially those who have aching hearts but are still pretending like everything's fine. I pray for my brothers and sisters, for myself, that we would deal honestly with where we are, that we would see and believe that you are working all things for good for those who love you. And that while we wait for you, that Jesus truly is enough for us. So help us to rest, help us to be honest and help us to rest in the kindness and comfort of Jesus Christ. And I pray for some who may be here this morning and they haven't yet trusted in Christ. Maybe they, maybe they really want to go to heaven one day and avoid hell, but they aren't really in love with Jesus. I pray that you would show them the kindness and tenderness of Christ, that their sins will be paid back upon their head unless they receive the kindness of Christ. So we pray for salvation to come this morning to those who need it. And we pray for the comforts of Christ to calm and strengthen our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.